Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today, we will be continuing our devotional series, The Gospel According to Zechariah. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our devotionals. I'm excited today to get into Zechariah 8, um, and we're in verse 16 and 17, and it says this. These are the things that you are to do. Speak the truth to each other. Render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all of these things, declares the Lord. So what you have there is uh, God has... Oh, my Bible is talking to me. You have God... Uh, speaking to his people and saying, this is what I want you to do. And this, and, and then he finishes it by saying these things I, I hate. In other words, um, so what does God hate? He hates uh, devising evil in our hearts against one another. He hates false oaths uh, and he hates lying. Um, and what he loves is judgments which are true and make for peace. So this morning, I just want to explore that, that whole topic of, of justice and why God wants true judgments in the courts, why God wants justice among his people. But first, let's just think about what this is doing in this, um, in this passage. And I think it's quite a, uh, a covenantal structure, really. And we throw around that word covenant a lot, but a covenant is simply really an agreement between a Lord and some people. And so there's lots of examples uh, from ancient history of a non-divine covenants, if you like. Non, it's not between God and people, just between a king and some people. So often a king would conquer a nation and make a covenant with the people who have been left behind. Sometimes it was uh, peaceful. There was no war that led to it. In fact, the Bible is actually unique for having covenants between God and man. It was this quite a radical thing to do in the ancient world. Um, but God is radical. <laughs> but one of the things you find pretty much always in the structure of covenants is that when they are first being made, or rather at the introduction of them, or even a reminder of them, first you tend to have a history of what the covenant maker, the Lord, has done for those people. So to use the example of, of the king who's conquered a people, First, it would retell his mighty deeds and his amazing career as a, as a warlord or a general or whatever. If it was a peaceful covenant, it would uh, be explaining kind of how he's rescued them or why they should uh, offer obedience to him. So it begins with a reminder of just who it is you're covenanting with. You know, the, it's kind of the why. Why are we making a covenant with this person? Why are we in covenant with this person? And that's what Zechariah 8 gives us in the first section up to this point really you are given promises as you you're remind rather we're reminded of god's promises that god is going to establish his people to build the temple this is the god who's going to make these things happen this is the god who wants to bless you and multiply you and cause people to dwell in peace so we're, we're given a reminder in the first section of the chapter why they're in covenant with god but then after that, after the reminder of what's gone before or the promises that are involved, often 
in covenants, you then have a statement of what's expected from those who enter into the covenant. And there's plenty of examples of this even in the Bible. So, I mean, Exodus 20, if you think about how it starts with God reminding Israel, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, I'm the one who led you through the wilderness, and then the Ten Commandments are laid out. This is what I expect from you, therefore. In the same way, we have that intro, and then we move into verse 16 and 17. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another and do the things that I've already read. God expects, as a result of what he's done for them, justice and righteousness and righteous action towards each other in light of what he's done for them. And I think one of the things this does is it challenges a very kind of modern evangelical way of thinking about the Christian life. Because it becomes very easy, kind of the phrases that we use and and what and who we uh, value and the kind of sermons that we uh, prize. And this isn't supposed to be an insult at all, rather just a question of emphasis. It's very easy to think of the Christian life only in terms of we know where we're going when we die. In terms of I know that I'm going to heaven and that's what being a Christian is about. But the fact that God has brought us into covenant with him, into an agreement with him, which has here and now implications, shows that God values what we do now. Being in covenant with God shows that life changes now. It's not simply about I know where I'm going, but rather I know who I am and what I'm to do, and I know who I belong to now. And so one of the things that God expects from his covenant people, from this group who are living as his people in agreement with him now is justice and mercy. He expects them to be merciful to one another and for the courts to render true justice, true judgments. These are characteristics very near and dear to God himself. And we are able to imitate them in our life as we seek justice, as we seek mercy. What a, what a privilege it is to be able to imitate the justice of God. It's a theme that is, comes up often through the Bible, especially on the topic of how can sinners approach God? How can sinners who have broken God's law approach a just, holy God? God is the embodiment of justice. And so God cares about justice, not just ultimate justice on the last day. He certainly does, but he cares about justice now. God cares about the way that people conduct themselves in society especially his covenant people. They are expected to render true judgments, as we read. And so our attitude to doing stuff in the world isn't merely a, you know, well, we'll get on this while we wait for something better. It is true, we are waiting for something better. We have eyes that look forward, you know, as Abraham, uh, as it says about Abraham in Hebrews 11, we look to the city that has um, foundations, but we get involved now, not because it's uh, well, we may as well get on with something. It's a good in itself because we are God's covenant people. And as I say, sometimes it's so easy to detach the Christian life from the world, detach kind of politics from Christianity. But if we're called to render true judgments, then we shouldn't be detaching, you know, the courts and politics from our views. We hear phrases today, and they're very popular, saying things like God is neither liberal nor conservative. He's neither on the right nor on the left. 
Now, I, I get what the phrase is trying to do. It's, it's trying to do something good. It's trying to basically say that you can't identify um, God with your party or you're not more holy if you support the right political party. And that's good. We shouldn't be thinking that, you know, we're scoring points somehow or that this is the godly party. So it's trying to do something good. But ultimately, what it does is it goes too far and it makes God apolitical makes God not bothered with world affairs. You know, well, as long as, as long as the right thing happens in the end, it doesn't really matter what you do. But God cares about the means and the end. And we shouldn't think that it doesn't matter which side of the fence you go on, it's just whatever appeals to you, God is happy. No, there is a Christian view of politics. God has an opinion on politics. Jesus was a person who would vote, I'm assuming, um, for a party. He calls us to be involved and to render true judgments. Now, I'm not saying that I think any party today lives up to the kind of biblical expectation of what a, a Christian uh, uh, political party should look like. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that there is a more godly option and a less godly option in the same way that, for instance, God is concerned about how you make your money. If you're going to make your money through honest means or through theft and lying and fraud, you could say, you're not saying that you are more holy if you are uh, not stealing your money. We're not saying you score points, but there is a more godly option and a less godly option. In the same way, politics can be done in a more godly way and a less godly way. There is a Christian view of politics. But the other extreme is on the other side, where people identify so heavily in politics, so heavily in what the courts can do today, that their hope is in it. And I, I've often watched uh, videos from people who are so mind, so politically minded, and I often find myself feeling quite sad because they cannot see any good coming from anything higher than Westminster. And I think what a depressing view of life that would be to put your hands, to put your hope and dreams and life in the hands of people who we know let us down. Even the courts, even as we long for the courts to administer true justice, we should never get so uh, idealistic that we're thinking that there will one day be a day where we know that everything that the courts say is right. And so there is a danger in, in setting our hope too much in politics or identifying too heavily uh, in politics, uh, but there is balance in the middle. And one of the problems with humans is that we often uh, react to one extreme by swinging straight over to the other side. One extreme is to, uh, you know, where you get this, particularly in America, where you get to church and they've uh, got the American flag hanging on the cross and some comment about how uh, you know, Republicans are the new messianic parties. Obviously, I'm caricaturing, but that's a kind of an extreme where our faith is so identified with a party. But people tend to react to that so far the other way and they say things like, Caring about politics in this world is like polishing the silver on a sinking ship. You know, we're not involved in that stuff. But no, God does have political views. God cares about justice in the courts. God cares about how his people conduct themselves. We don't want to set our hope in politics. But we don't want to completely detach uh, justice from the Christian life. One of the things I think we can apply this so practically is we should desire to see, as I say, the courts 
deal with true justice, to treat people in a way that God says we should treat them, even when they're convicted for a crime. But one of the failings that I'm seeing kind of starting to develop, especially as people are starting to lose their grip on innocent till guilty, for instance, is that we are more concerned with making sure that every evildoer is punished, even if that results in some collateral damage, even if it means a few innocent people go down too. But I think the biblical view causes us to detach ourselves a little bit, only a little bit, and say, no, we want the justice, we want justice, we want to see God's attributes manifested in the way that we deal with problems like crime, like criminal justice. But at the same time, we know that there's no such thing as, pers- as a person getting away with it. People who have quote unquote gotten away with it haven't got away from the judgment seat of Christ. And so we don't want to set our hope entirely in what can happen on earth. But at the same time, God calls us to be passionate about it. And so, as I say, we've got to find that place in the middle. I'd just like to finish from a quote um, from a theologian called Herman Barbink. And it's, it's funny because if anyone has heard of Herman Barbink outside of Holland, where he's from, they would say Herman Barbink, the theologian. But in Holland, Herman Barbink was known as a politician because he was a politician. He was the secretary for education. And they didn't really know much as a theologian, which is funny. But he wrote an excellent essay um, called On Inequality. And it's basically thinking a Christian view of what politics, what justice looks like when we approach inequality. And he says this, this just as he's coming to a close of the essay, and it is so profound. When a person loses his faith in a higher, better world, life here on earth begins to look more and more like a jail against whose walls he butts his head senselessly. What a profound statement to make on that topic of politics. The the more one loses their view for what God has in store, the more this current world looks like a jail cell, which we are constantly butting our head against. That's what politics detached from God gets you. But equally, we shouldn't detach God from politics. God cares about what happens with justice. So I've gone on a bit, but I'll finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not detached but involved. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has called us to be your people, who has called us to mirror you, who has given us expectations on what we should look like, what we should care about. But we just pray that we would desire true justice, that we would be merciful to one another, that we would not uh, bear false witness or lie, for you hate these things, as you say here. So, Lord, just bless us and encourage us by your spirit, we pray. Amen.